This is Northwest This Week. Hello and welcome to Northwest This Week. I'm Bill O'Neill in Vermont, Christopher. More money to fight car thefts may soon be coming to Washington. Lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic and how to prepare for the next one. And Dow Constantine delivers the annual State of King County address. It all happened this week. Let's get you caught up. More money may soon be available to fight auto theft here in Washington. Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson tells us about a bill that just cleared the state house. Taylor Gardner with the Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs urged lawmakers to pass the bill that would put more money into the auto theft prevention account, with the numbers of stolen vehicles continuing to climb. Reaching an all-time highs. More than 45,000 of those stolen vehicles across the state just last year. Now, Department of Corrections has been receiving money from the same fund to incarcerate more car thieves, but under this bill, DOC would be excluded, so the funds would go to prevention and prosecution of auto thieves. Republican Representative Paul Harris voted against the measure, citing frustration over restrictions on police. I truly believe until we do something on the other end of enforcing laws in our state that will actually be able the ability to stop an individual, I think we're really headed in the wrong direction, so I'll be voting no. The measure did pass and has moved over to the Senate. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Plans to cut down on the number of people hurt and killed in traffic crashes were the focus of a presentation to Seattle city leaders this past week. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris tells us about it. Seattle Department of Transportation administrators say people walking and biking are particularly vulnerable, especially along arterials where it's hard to cross and people drive too fast. Venu Namani, now SDOT's chief safety officer, says there's been a 20% reduction in crashes at intersections with red light cameras and a 50% reduction in school zones with speed cameras. Our next action is to engage the public on automated enforcement about future expansion in neighborhoods with many fatalities and serious injuries. Those crashes are often clustered in neighborhoods of color, so Councilmember Tammy Morales says she doesn't want to add to over-policing there. The bottom line is no matter your race or your income, you need to be a safe driver so that you don't kill your neighbor. SDOT is also expanding bans on right turns on red lights downtown to reduce problem crashes there, with talk of eliminating rights on red citywide. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Portions of Seattle neighborhood streets closed during the pandemic will remain closed under a program to create permanent healthy streets. Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake explains. Seattle was among the first cities in the nation to launch COVID-related lockdowns early in 2020 and also quick to recognize the ramifications. Kids were sent home from schools, parks and playgrounds were closed. To encourage more outdoor activity close to home, the Seattle Transportation Department barred all but local traffic from parts of 21 streets in a dozen city neighborhoods. Neighbors found pandemic or no pandemic, this was nice. With the road being closed, it gives a lot more people the opportunity to come to a nice place that's safe. The voices are from an SDOT-produced video as the agency begins deciding how many street segments can permanently become healthy streets. An early choice is already up and running in Greenwood on Northwest 73rd. Others are coming to Beacon Hill and Ballard. It's great to just see more kids out, people on bikes, less cars. SDOT says it will rely on community use trends and public feedback to choose more permanent healthy streets. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. It was a long trip back from the pandemic, but this past week marked the return of the Amtrak Cascades route from Portland to Vancouver. Northwest News Radio's John Lobertini reports from the King Street Station in Seattle. A Vancouver-bound train from Portland pulled into Seattle on this Monday for the first time in three years. 
Amtrak's Ray Lang. Prior to the pandemic, Amtrak was setting new ridership revenue and financial performance records for the Cascade service. Twelve stops and a mountain of sights along the eight-hour trip. But WashDOT's Ron Pate says this is also a win-win for traffic congestion and business. This service is critical for our state, our region, our area. The Cascadia Corridor is an important corridor for economic development, moving people back and forth. Amtrak restored the Seattle to BC route back in September, but Lang says a worker shortage made for delays on a second trip out of Portland. We needed to have enough mechanics to be able to service the trains. We're at a position now where we have enough for the second train start. That was the last thing we had to overcome. Amtrak says the trains are about 80% full, and more cars are going to be added to those trips in the months ahead. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. How would you like to work just four days a week? Some already do that, working four 10-hour shifts instead of the traditional five-eighths. That idea has already taken hold in large parts of the European Union, and it seems to be gaining ground here in the U.S. Taylor Telford is covering it for the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Jeff Pojola. Last week, Representative Mark Ticano of California reintroduced a bill, actually, that he had surfaced last year, but decided now would be a better time. But this bill would essentially alter the Fair Labor Standards Act and change the standard work week from 40 hours to 32 hours. And that's really coinciding with, I think, uh, an overall reevaluation of our work standards as we emerge from the pandemic. And and lots of companies are already experimenting with this, but a lot of these experiments have been more limited to smaller firms, particularly in the tech space, that are already more flexibility friendly. And so this bill would represent a real landmark shift in the way that we think about work. And over, it would also lower the standard for overtime compensation for many employees. And just looking at the makeup of Congress, this doesn't look like it really has much of a chance getting out of committee, much less clearing the House. Yeah, it's true that the last time out with this bill, it did not get a hearing in committee, and it could definitely have a difficult path to floor time in the Republican-controlled House. But Representative Takano is very enthusiastic about the potential for this bill to help American workers, and it is a moment that's really ripe for reevaluation of the workforce when we look at all of the kind of battles over flexibility, both on an individual and organizational level that are playing out right now in American workforces. Where does the private sector stand on this? mentioned some companies are experimenting with it. Definitely, yeah. Not only uh, individual companies, but also different states and municipalities around the country right now are looking for ways to encourage employers to really give this a go and see how it could work for them. Like Maryland, for example, is considering uh, a bill right now that would offer tax incentives to employers who give the four-day work week a serious go. And what about, you know, you mentioned the federal level and in some of the state levels as well, but uh, we have a, a lot of companies, you mentioned the tech sector, is really into this? Definitely, yeah. I think one of the things that's appealing about about this bill is that it would probably bring you know the opportunity for flexible work in that truncated work weeks to a lot of other sectors that are not already in a position to experiment with this. But obviously there will be some some bigger challenges in adapting that. It's a lot easier for, say, a knowledge worker to make this adjustment than, say, an employer that has, you know, a factory where they're producing things and they need people going around the clock. But uh, there's, there's real optimism that this is something that is possible. It would just take people having the willingness to really sit down and figure out what else work could look like. Amazon is permanently closing eight of its Amazon Go convenience stores, including two in Seattle. 
Northwest News Radio's Kathy O'Shea has the story. GeekWire reports in addition to the two Seattle locations, Amazon is closing two stores in New York City and four in San Francisco. An Amazon spokesperson said the two Seattle locations at 3rd Avenue and Pine Street and 4th Avenue at Pike Street have been closed for some time due to safety concerns. The company says it's still committed to the Amazon Go format and will continue to operate more than 20 locations, including five other Seattle stores. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. I'm Bill O'Neill with Northwest News This Week. It's a way for you to catch up on stories you might have missed this past week on Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest This Week. The things public health experts say we should learn from the COVID pandemic include a reminder this century's pattern makes another one imminent. Here's Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. We had SARS in 2002, MERS in 2012, and COVID in 2019. And Baylor University's Dr. Peter Hotez says Mother Nature is sending a loud signal. I think we'll have a fourth major coronavirus pandemic before the end of this decade. Hotez joined Dr. Christopher Murray with UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation for a discussion where Murray says vaccine confidence is at an all-time low. The whole experience of the pandemic has lowered people's willingness to even vaccinate their children children with proven life-saving vaccines. The road back to building confidence is not so obvious. They also say COVID lessons should include balancing the race for new vaccine technology with the need to use what works and to use the developing country's network of vaccine makers to get shots to more people faster because that could have meant fewer variants like Delta and Omicron emerging from widely unvaccinated countries. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. This week, Governor Jay Inslee addressed various issues moving through the legislature but spent some extra time on one in particular. Northwest News Radio's Marina Rockinger has the details. Governor Inslee talked to reporters on where we are in the legislative session. He briefly touched on bills on gun reform, fighting climate change, supporting behavioral health, and funding special education. But one subject in particular had his attention, housing limitations and homelessness. The homelessness crisis statewide is a result of three things, and they're all related. Number one, we have a mental health crisis in the state of Washington. Number two, we have a chemical addiction crisis. And number three, we have a lack of housing crises. Governor Inslee says all three need to be dealt with at the same time in order to fix them all. He says he hopes House Bill 1110, which would increase middle housing in areas dedicated to single-family detached housing, will reach his desk. HB 1110 has passed the House and is in committee in the Senate. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. The state Senate has unanimously passed a bill to legalize fentanyl testing strips. Details now from Northwest News Radio's Jeff Pochula. The little strips of paper that test a substance to see if it's laced with fentanyl are currently banned in Washington state, listed as illegal drug paraphernalia. But Republican State Senator Ron Muzal of Whidbey Island has floated a bill that would lift that ban. This isn't the answer to all of our drug problems. This is just one small step toward addressing what we have as a pandemic of of drug overdose deaths. The idea is to prevent deaths, according to Mazal. He says people struggling with addiction should know if what they're taking is laced with the potent deadly drug. Mazal's bill passed unanimously out of the state Senate and now heads to the House for consideration. Jeff Pozel in Northwest News Radio. A bill that will fund the creation of crisis teams who can rapidly respond when someone calls the 988 suicide lifeline is unanimously passed the state house. 
Details from Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson. It's a line that people can call for help in behavioral health emergencies, separate from 911. This bill goes a step further to create stand-up teams that can rapidly respond so that when someone is suicidal, a trained behavioral health specialist can respond instead of law enforcement. Paula Sardinas with Build Back Black Washington testified in support. This is an investment in Washington's most vulnerable population. This is saying that everyone matters and that we understand at the forefront of that is the mental health crisis. The measure would create 988 contact hubs that can streamline clinical interventions and access to resources. And near 30 percent of the rapid response funding is going to be provided to Washington's Native American communities experiencing very high suicide rates. The bill passed unanimously and now heads to the Senate for consideration. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Human services workers in Seattle and King County are significantly underpaid. Northwest News Radio's Kathy O'Shea explains why. A new University of Washington study finds those providing essential services like child and elder care, food and housing assistance, and other community services are underpaid by as much as 37 percent. The study also found that workers leaving for jobs in other sectors see a net pay increase of 7 percent after a year. The study made a number of recommendations, including raising wages at least 7 percent in the near term and by at least 40 percent by 2030. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Every year, hundreds of millions of items are sold claiming to be healthy. In fact, the Healthy Choice brand itself sells 200 million meals per year. But what does healthy even mean? The FDA wants to update that definition. Laura Riley's covering it for the Washington Post. She spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Laura, as it stands today, what does it mean if my food claims to be healthy? And are there, in fact, rules that keep, say, Pop-Tarts from using that buzzword on their box? There are indeed. So foods have to have a certain amount of the good stuff and a certain lack of the bad stuff. So it has to have, you know, nutrients of desire, you know, the the fruits and veg and dairy products that we are supposed to be eating, a meaningful amount of those. And then their new proposed limit is on saturated fat, sodium, and added sugars. So that added sugars piece is the first time the FDA has kind of weighed in on on limiting that. And so if we use that example of healthy choice, for example, you know, they've got so much money invested in that brand. What would they have to do to make their chicken parm or or whatever able to still hold that healthy choice label? Well, ConAgra, the parent company, basically said, we can't do it. We can't make food that people want to buy and eat and adhere to these rules. So we may just pivot and get rid of this, this healthy choice brand and do something else entirely. And a lot of the food industry kind of came back to the FDA in the form of comments and letters saying, we can't make the food that people find craveable and adhere to these, especially those added sugar limits. So at this point, you know, there's sugar in everything. It's not just in the the drinks, the sodas and the, the juices. I mean, in pasta sauces and salad dressings and bagels and, you know, kind of name anything, they have added sugars. So this is probably going to drive a lot of food companies to reformulate and possibly to reformulate with high-intensity sweeteners, you know, non-nutritive sweeteners in to sub out some of those added sugars. I'm wondering how hard you had to dig to find a food producer that was happy about the proposed changes. I didn't find any, actually. So even even organizations that you think, you know, why do they care? You know, American Cheese Society basically pushed back and said, 
you know, the word healthy shouldn't be applied to a single food. You know, it's more of a lifestyle. It's how you're eating. It's with whom you're eating. It's the, the portion size. It's all these other things kind of fit together to make a healthy lifestyle. And that it's a little specious to point to this food right here and say, this is a healthy food, especially if the way they get over that line is by being fortified or highly processed and supplemented with vitamins and those kinds of things. Is that really healthy? The jury's out. And for that matter, does anybody really notice the word healthy on their foods? What would it do to your own shopping habits? You can read much more online at WashingtonPost.com from food business reporter Laura Riley. A Seattle-based study finds tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons provide useful sandboxes in which young people can develop critical social skills. Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake explains. The newly released study shows role-playing games can be used to teach skills young players will find useful in real life. Games have this power to create engagement and to help us grow and improve our lives. Adam Davis, local co-founder of Game to Grow, says his nonprofit's therapeutic gaming sessions introduce problem-solving scenarios and encourage young players to employ teamwork and other relationship skills via their role-play character. But then also, hopefully, they will have internalized the skill that they have seen in effect through their character that then they can take back to their family, back to their school, back to their community. Davis spoke to podcaster Jamie Madigan. Game to Grow has partnered with Seattle educational researchers Foundry 10 on a new study that finds role-playing games can provide a type of sandbox environment in which young people with social issues to work out can try new things and learn from mistakes. The results, the study says, improved conflict resolution skills and a greater capacity for complex reflection. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News This Week continues. I'm Bill O'Neill, in for Mark Christopher. You're listening to Northwest This Week. The homeless, the environment, and new ideas, the cornerstones of this week's State of the County Address by King County Executive Dow Constantine. Northwest News Radio's John Lobertini reports. Playing to his core audience, Dow Constantine hailed the restoration of the Conservation Futures Fund. The people told us to keep preserving and restoring irreplaceable wilderness and open space for all the generations. A property tax going before voters would pay for crisis care centers for people suffering from mental health and psychiatric episodes. How many people are in jail when they need to be in a treatment bed? How many people are at risk on the street when they just need a place to recover? And a new brand of transparent public safety. In the next few weeks, the sheriff's office will begin deploying body-worn and dash cameras, a critical tool of transparency and objectivity. The Civic Campus Initiative would renovate mostly government buildings in the name of downtown revitalization. Sound Transit is considering the shuttered administration building as a site for a new link light rail station. I propose we keep it and allow Sound Transit to build their new tunnel and station below. There's a lot there, and it's going to require a lot of cooperation. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Two bills that would have effectively instituted rent control in Washington have failed in the state legislature. Details from Northwest News Radio's Jeff Pogela. House Bill 1389 would have capped rent hikes and required six months' notice for certain increases. Meanwhile, 1124 would allow tenants to break a lease if a rent increase of more than 5% was coming. Both bills failed to meet a procedural deadline last night and are effectively dead. Each piece of legislation faced significant opposition, including from landlords like Jeff Peck, who testified against the bills. As a landlord, here you are once again telling me what I can and can't do with my own property. Demo- 
Democrats supported each of the measures, but Republicans were able to stall the process long enough for the two bills to fail. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Equal pay for equal work again in the sights of Washington's senior U.S. Senator. More from Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. Democratic Senator Patty Murray has tried and failed a couple of times to get the Paycheck Fairness Act through Congress, blocked by Republicans who say it's not necessary because of two other laws on the books and that it would create more fodder for lawyers. But Murray says women are still paid an average of 77% of what men make and that it's even less for women of color. Black women are paid just 64 cents compared to white men, Latina women, 54 cents, and Asian, American, and Pacific Islander women paid as little as 80 cents. The bill calls for transparency so you know if you're paid fairly and it forbids using your pay from past jobs in the hiring process. That disparity often carries over to your next job because salary history is too often used to determine your future pay. It would also protect workers from retaliation for discussing their pay. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Fake automated Twitter accounts praising former President Donald Trump and ridiculing his critics, but just who is behind it all? I spoke with Andy Field who took a closer look for ABC News. Okay, Andy, these accounts, they look like they've been around for about a year now. Yeah, about 11 months, automated Twitter accounts, maybe hundreds of thousands of them, we don't know, and it's basically to offer a steady stream of praise for Donald Trump. Some of them are ridiculing Trump's critics from both parties and, of course, his uh, possible chief rival, Ron DeSantis. Now, you would think, well, these should be easy to spot, but they're getting better at it. Uh, They're getting better at setting up fake pictures, fake names. We've heard of these artificial intelligence chatbots that you can put various phrases and things in there, and it will just come up with all kinds of natural-sounding phrases, which they then automate into putting into these Twitter feeds so that other people see it and say, well, gee, that sounds reasonable. Maybe I should forward that to someone else. The, The real people, and of course, real people start following these things. Other people pick up on it, and they suddenly get a whole bunch of followers, and the disinformation basically attack ads that they really are, get spread all over Twitter and then migrate to other social media platforms. And that's where they cause the real damage, because you start to say, well, gee, a lot of people are saying this. Maybe there's something to it. Obviously, as you said, someone has set this up. Do we have any idea as to who that someone might be? Well, we know that someone was Russian agents in 2016, We know Russia continues to put its hand on the scale of American elections to elect politicians that are friendly to the Kremlin. And certainly Donald Trump has shown some indication that he is indeed friendly to Vladimir Putin. In fact, he even said so in his speech at the CPAC this weekend, saying, I get along with Vladimir Putin. I could end the Ukraine war. I could make peace. I could avoid World War III. People are very good at hiding this stuff. Most of us are familiar with these things called virtual private networks to hide our IP address so that we remain somewhat anonymous on the Internet. These bots can do the same thing. The other part of this, obviously, is Twitter. What, if anything, does Twitter have to say about any of this? Well, Twitter insists that it's getting better at spotting these things and taking them down, but researchers have shown that, in fact, that's not always the case. And even today, Twitter's having all kinds of issues. Elon Musk is saying... He's surprised at how fragile the infrastructure system of Twitter is. So they've got some bigger fish to fry here, and they're probably not focusing a whole lot on the bot. ABC's Andy Field with us on the Northwest Newsline. It's one thing to declare a crisis. It's quite another to take action. That's what one Washington county is finding two years after announcing a commitment to end racism. 
More from Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake. This nation is at a crossroads in its race relations today. It was March 9th, 2021, when Dr. Thelma Jackson of Lacey addressed the Thurston County Board of Commissioners. On that day, the board declared racism to be a countywide crisis. It committed itself to creating an action plan and to naming a committee to advise the board on meaningful policies to advance racial equity. But Dr. Jackson warned, Don't let the conversations and dialogue become just another fleeting moment that does not result in systemic changes. Her words were prescient. Since then, the Olympian reports, the action plan has yet to be approved. Despite the plan's emphasis on diversity in government hiring, 83% of county employees identify as white, only 2% as black. County manager Ramiro Chavez tells the Olympian, quote, I really don't have the staff to do justice to what we need to do. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. State lawmakers are pushing ahead with legislation to ban at-home rape test kits. It would make Washington among the first states in the country to ban the sale of a product sponsors say mislead survivors of sexual assault about their options. Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson reports. Prime sponsor Republican Representative Gina Mossbrucker told fellow lawmakers do-it-yourself rape test kits can't be uploaded to CODIS. That is the federal database used to identify repeat offenders. They're selling false hope. The person who's doing it themselves to do their kit is under the impression that they can do it themselves, mail it in, and get prosecution. So we're traumatizing them twice. Alana Turco, a rape survivor with Lita Health, the group this legislation is aimed at, said the argument that evidence from their kits is not admissible is entirely inaccurate. That is not how the rules of evidence work in Washington state nor anywhere else. Washington is part of an emerging trend among states seeking legislative remedies against companies marketing these home test kits. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. This is Northwest News This Week. Welcome back to Northwest This Week, the Florida launch pad where astronaut John Glenn began his pioneering 1962 mission to orbit the Earth is now the domain of a Kent, Washington-based rocket company. Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake explains. The U.S. Space Force has announced Space Launch Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral will become operations center to Kent-based Stoke Space, a company launched by two former employees of another Kent-based space outfit you may have heard of, Blue Origin. Stoke Space builds reusable rockets. Sounds mundane until you remember in the 1960s and 70s, all but the very top of a rocket where the astronauts sit was thrown away. Everybody tried everything in the 50s and 60s. I think we're in like a this renaissance period where people are actually having ideas and then building stuff. That's Stokes CEO Andy Lapsa telling blogger Trevor Sesnick about Stokes' revolutionary design that gently returns the rocket part of the spacecraft to Earth for quick turnaround and reuse. Stoke now has been granted use of the pad that launched early NASA missions, including the one in 1962 that sent John Glenn into orbit. A Stokes spokesperson tells GeekWire the company is honored and looks forward to adding to the pad's many space program accomplishments. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. From Alaska to Mexico and throughout Puget Sound, starfish along the Pacific coast are essentially melting away. They've been turning into goo for about a decade. More than a dozen species have been decimated by a mysterious illness dubbed sea star wasting syndrome. Dino Grandoni is covering it for the Washington Post. 
and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Tom Hutler. You say this is a mysterious situation. Does anybody know what's causing these starfish to melt away? Yeah, that's a good question. Scientists have been researching this issue for about a decade now, ever since they first spotted um, the melting sea stars off the coast of Washington. And really, we don't have a good answer yet, um, or at least we don't have consensus as to an answer. There's some people who think that it is caused by a pathogen, like a virus or bacteria, and there are other folks who think that this has to do with some change in the environment. Hmm. Uh, is there anything that can be done right now for these sick starfish? How quickly does this illness uh, kill the individual animal? It can kill an animal within a matter of days or even hours oh, wow. um, after symptoms are first noticed. Um, obviously, the animal could have been sicker for longer, um, and you know we didn't notice. But um, what can be done? The folks at the Oregon Coast Aquarium have come up with uh, a novel treatment for the sea stairs that basically involves giving them the equivalent of a spa day where they basically get a mineral bath, some probiotics, they get disinfected with iodine. But it's really hard or next to impossible to try to treat an entire ocean of starfish that are sick. Yeah. So there are efforts underway to try to breed starfish in captivity and uh, with, the, with the thought of one day uh, releasing them into the wild. Starfish are, are critical to holding off global warming, aren't they? They are, they are, yeah. Um, what species in particular, the sunflower starfish, is very important for the uh, kelp forests that um, exist off the coast of California and Oregon and Washington State. This species, which is massive, about you know three feet in diameter, eat uh, sea urchins, which in turn helps keep their numbers down and help keep kelp forests healthy. And the kelp forests are important for sequestering carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Well, interesting story. I wish we had more time to delve into it, but you uh, can read Dino's story at WashingtonPost.com. Dino Grandoni, thanks for being with us. A bill that would have given local governments in eastern Washington more authority to kill and move wolves is likely dead. Details from Eric Heinz. House Bill 1698 was introduced in the state legislature earlier this year. However, it failed to get a hearing in the fiscal committee. The Spokesman Review reports it would have allowed the Department of Fish and Wildlife to manage gray wolves as if they had been removed from state endangered or protected status within counties under certain breeding conditions. Eric Heitz, Northwest News Radio. Beekeepers in the Northwest have another pest to worry about. Details now from Northwest News Radio's Jeff Pogela. In 2019, it was murder hornets. Now, it's Houdini flies. The flies get their name by sneaking into the nests of mason bees and laying eggs. The flies hatch first and devour the food left for the bees, leaving them to starve. According to the Seattle Times, the Houdini flies are native to Europe, but have been found in the areas of Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver, B.C. Now, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is working to develop a tramp to help exterminate these pests. Jeff Pogel Northwest News Radio. There is some good news for dog-loving Seattle. Northwest News Radio's Manufacturer explains. Two new off-leash dog parks are coming to the city. We know one will be in West Seattle. Seattle Parks plans to study more than 30 parks and playfields to decide how feasible it would be to add a dog park. Nearly $3.5 million was set aside by the park district last year. It includes the design and community outreach for a third park. The parks to be studied include Rainier Beach Playfield, Lincoln Park, Ballard Commons, Gasworks Park, and Jefferson Park. According to the Times, Seattle Parks and Rec hopes to finish the study by late spring. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. The ferry at the center of that violent crash in West Seattle last summer could be back on the water in a matter of weeks. Northwest News Radio's John Lobertini reports. 
The Cathlamet drifted off course last July and barreled into the Fauntleroy dock, badly damaging both. Ian Sterling is with Washington State Ferries. That boat is under repair in an Eagle Harbor shipyard where it will get recertified by the Coast Guard and have some finishing touches put on it. The ferry veered off course, hitting some pilings and crushing one side of the boat. Repair costs are close to $7 million. It still needs some work done, and then the recertification needs to happen. It's before it can go back in service, but it will return to service really in the next couple of months. Sooner than later, too, Sterling says the Cath Lambert will be navigating the waters along the Fauntleroy Vashon Southworth route as soon as later this month. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Thanks for tuning in as we continue with Northwest This Week. Northwest This Week continues. Well, the deal is eight, three years, and as much as $105 million for Seahawks quarterback Geno Smith. Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris reports from Hawks headquarters. He's signed, sealed, and now it's up to the Seahawks quarterback to deliver on his newly inked contract. I'm Ryan Harris with this Northwest News Radio Extra. Hawks coach Pete Carroll summed it up at the official announcement at the VMAC in Renton. That's a great, great day for us. Hawks GM John Schneider says Smith showed his value last season. What an inspiration you've been to men, women, young, old, all around the country. Lessons about faith perseverance, work ethic, being a good person, man. It seems Geno Smith feels like he's found a home in Seattle after a decade in the NFL he acknowledges has not gone the way he might have hoped. I had to bounce team to team and try to find my way and then I found this place and it kind of changed me. You know, uh, Coach Carroll being so inspiring, he just forced me to believe more in myself and that brought us here today. Coach Carroll says it's been fun to watch Smith's evolution as a Seahawk and finding success in the Emerald City. He always knew. We just had to let it out you know that was what what you did you know you always knew that you could do this and that's why when it happened and the opportunity was there and you take over the reins of it you handled it so so flawlessly despite that tough 10 years smith says he has a job to be the best player and team leader he can be the contract is fulfilling but i just love playing football Having another opportunity to go out there with my guys, my teammates, with these coaches, this organization, uh, is all I can ask for. And that theme of faith and perseverance Schneider mentioned is not just about Smith, but what he sees on the road ahead for the Seahawks. I just believe um, in my ability. You know, I believe that with the guys around me, with the coaches that we have, I think the future is very bright for us. In fact, Smith says he's confident in Schneider and Coach Pete Carroll's ability to build a championship team. When I asked him what he thinks the team still needs, he defined to the coach and Seahawks leadership, including Schneider. I'm the player here, so I just, I got to focus on, uh, you know, the guys that we do have and just continue to build those guys up and continue to work as hard as we can to be a great team. And I trust these guys to make those decisions. That trust in the organization and his teammates will likely be a key to a successful season. Of course, Coach Carroll also summed up what the team needs to do to find that success. We need to win a couple more games. We know that. I think it's a safe bet the 12s agree. And at the very least, here's hoping they do it to honor the members of the queen of the 12s, Mama Blue. With this Northwest News Radio Extra, I'm Ryan Harris. This week we remember one of the NFL's greatest fans. Here's Northwest News Radio's Bill Swartz. An original ticket holder in 1976, Patty Hammond was loud and loyal. Donning her signature blue and green sparkly wigs, Patty's joy and passion for the Seattle Seahawks was unmatched, enough to earn her the loving nickname Mama Blue. Three years ago, Patty took on pancreatic cancer, the same way Cam Chancellor would tackle running backs. Eight days of chemo and radiation, good. I had no side effects whatsoever, and uh, 
it's it's been a, an uphill climb, and I won't say it's a walk in the park, but I made up my mind that uh, I wasn't ready to leave yet. i got to get my boys back to the Super Bowl, so I'm back. She offered inspiration to others fighting the good fight. And I hope it helps anybody that's listening or doesn't have it or knows somebody that has it, but it really is a mind over matter. And if you don't mind, it don't matter. Mama Blue showed up for Seattle Seahawks camp in Renton, eager to keep cheering on her team. I'm hoping to go to games and see my boys down by the tunnel, and hopefully I can at least give them a high five or something. But uh, they, they were part of it. I said without them, I said they got me. She was the first fan to raise the 12 flag at Lumen Field. Patty Hammond was not only Seattle's best fan. In 2020, she was a finalist for NFL Fan of the Year. Well, I don't know how much more shock I can take at 90. You know, you got to be a little careful. But uh, I was honored uh, and humbled and everything else. I mean... Like I said, all I've ever done is just put on more paint and make noise, but it's working. Last Saturday, Patty Hammond's family announced on her official Facebook page that Mama Blue had passed away at age 92. Tributes continue to pour in from everybody who had the privilege of knowing her. Seattle head coach Pete Carroll tweeted, Mama Blue of the 12s, there will never be another one like you. Former Seahawks player and longtime radio voice Steve Rabel said, Great fan, great lady. We were all her boys. Rest in peace, Patty. I'm Bill Swartz, Northwest News Radio. The body of Joe Jarzenka, a fan favorite of the UW Husky football program from the 1990s, was found this week along a river in the Olympic Peninsula. Here's Northwest News Radio's Eric Heinz. Clallam County Sheriff's deputies responded around 10 a.m. Sunday to a report of a man found dead on a riverbank outside of Forks. Joe Jarzinka's family said he had gone to Forks to go fishing and brought with him a single-person pontoon boat, which was found stuck in a log jam about a mile from where he was found. Jarzinka walked onto the UW football team in 1995 out of Gig Harbor High School. His greatest season came as a junior in 1998 when he was a first-team All-Pac-10 selection as an all-purpose player. He was 45 years old. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Northwest News this week is heard each week at this time on Northwest News Radio AM 1000 and FM 97.7 and also as a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. That's where you'll find other favorites like Politicast and Life. If you enjoy this program, feel free to share a rating and review at Apple Podcast. I'm producer Bill O'Neill. In for Mark Christopher, our editor and tech advisor is Peter Webb. Thank you for listening.